maternal cardiac arrest intrapartum or peripartum is a horrific, devastating occurrence. But we all have to be prepared. Whether the cause of maternal cardiac arrest is high regional anesthetic or the even rarer amniotic fluid emboli, we have to be prepared. So in this podcast, we're going to cover amniotic fluid embolism and the diagnostic and therapeutic workup for this rare event that obviously can lead to maternal cardiac arrest. All right, before we jump into amniotic fluid embolism specifically, I do want to remind everyone that we have a specific podcast covering cardiac arrest in pregnancy. You can go back to the archive and look for that. That was a review of the American Heart Association statement regarding the condition and its management from the journal Circulation. Now, on to amniotic fluid embolism. Amniotic fluid embolism is a rare but potentially lethal condition. Because of a lack of international consensus regarding diagnostic criteria, estimates of both incidence and mortality rates associated with AFE vary widely. According to U.S. data, cardiac arrest, specifically peripartum, occurs anywhere from 1 in 12,000 to 1 in 15,000 maternal admissions for labor. Now, despite its low incidence in the general population of pregnant women, both maternal and perinatal morbidity and mortality are significant with amniotic fluid embolism, even in cases that are ideally managed, and very few are because it happens in such an unpredictable and an acute manner. Because of the rarity of this condition, most physicians and institutions have limited experience with the management of AFE. So here is the first clinical pearl and call to action. Every labor and delivery institution, every hospital in the country should carry out specific drills, not just for postpartum hemorrhage and shoulder dystocia, but also for maternal cardiac arrest, specifically for amniotic fluid embolism. Amniotic fluid embolism appears to involve a complex sequence of events triggered in certain women by entrance into the maternal circulation of material from the fetal compartment resulting in an abnormal activation of pro-inflammatory mediator systems similar to the systemic inflammatory response syndrome. The typical presentation of amniotic fluid embolism is a triad, so this is a clinical pearl. Remember, the typical presentation is a triad of sudden hypoxia, hypotension, followed in many cases by coagulopathy. So it's hypotension, hypoxia, and coagulopathy. All of these occur in relation to events in labor and delivery. The diagnosis of amniotic fluid embolism is not based on laboratory or radiological findings. It's purely clinical, and it's based on the presence of these elements and the exclusion of other likely causes. Amniotic fluid embolism should be considered in the differential diagnosis in any pregnant or immediately postpartum woman who suffers sudden cardiovascular collapse or cardiac arrest or even seizures, severe respiratory difficulty or hypoxia, particularly if such events are followed by a coagulopathy that cannot be otherwise explained. 
The analysis of the National Registry reveals that 70% of cases of amniotic fluid embolism occur during labor, 11% happen after a vaginal delivery, and 19% after a cesarean delivery. So here's a clinical pearl. These figures suggest that the mode of delivery may alter the timing of amniotic fluid embolism, but not its occurrence. Now, in rare instances, amniotic fluid embolism has even been diagnosed or suspected after a first or second trimester termination of pregnancy. It's also even been suspected as a cause of maternal collapse after amniocentesis. Obviously, these are much rarer. And remember that 70% of amniotic fluid embolisms occur during labor. The clinical presentation of AFE is, in its classic form, dramatic. A period of maternal anxiety, change in mental status, agitation, and a sensation of doom may precede the event. Patients may progress rapidly to cardiac arrest with pulseless electrical activity, asystole, ventricular fibrillation, or pulseless ventricular tachycardia. Now, in cases occurring prior to delivery, electronic fetal monitoring will demonstrate decelerations, loss of variability, and terminal bradycardia. Remember, that's a fetal heart rate less than 60 beats per minute. This is because oxygenated blood is being shunted away from the uterus and catecholamine-induced uterine hypertonus causes a further decline in uterine perfusion. Let's talk about disseminated intravascular coagulation next. Disseminated intravascular coagulation is present in up to 83% of cases. The coagulopathy of AFE may occur in conjunction with the cardiopulmonary manifestations or it can occur after initial cardiopulmonary resuscitation has been completed. In very rare cases, it's the only finding in women without cardiopulmonary compromise, but that's rare. DIC is commonly manifested by hemorrhagic complications like bleeding from venous puncture sites or surgical sites, hematuria, GI bleeding, or vaginal bleeding. Now here's a clinical pearl. As with any condition involving diminished uterine perfusion, coexistence with uterine atony is not uncommon. However, bleeding from incompletely controlled atony that's later followed by hypovolemic shock and either a consumptive or dilutional coagulopathy cannot be attributed to amniotic fluid embolism, nor does amniotic fluid embolism occur as a mild coagulopathy followed hours later by sudden cardiovascular collapse in the absence of interval hemorrhage and hypovolemia. In other words, you can't blame severe hypovolemia and cardiopulmonary collapse on amniotic fluid embolism if the initial cause was uncontrolled maternal atony. Regarding risk factors, reported risk factors for AFE include situations in which the exchange of fluids between the maternal and fetal compartments is more likely, like operative delivery, either cesarean or vaginal, placenta previa, placenta accreta spectrum, and abruption. An association between induction of labor and AFE has been reported, but it's been inconsistent. 
abnormalities of uterine tone, like hypertonus or even hypotonus, have been described commonly in these cases. However, this is more likely to be the result of uterine hypoperfusion, secondary to profound maternal shock and hypoxia, rather than its cause. Other putative risk factors include cervical lacerations, uterine rupture, eclampsia, multiple gestations, and polyhydramnios. Boy, you know, just doing this podcast increases my stress level. This is a terrible condition. Now, once we suspect this condition, or in case of any maternal cardiopulmonary collapse, we have to know what to do. So let's talk about that next. Okay, let's get into the stressful part, which is management. Listen, regardless of the cause of maternal cardiopulmonary collapse, quick action is necessary. Initial resuscitation of cardiac arrest does not require a specific diagnosis of amniotic fluid embolism because initial maternal treatment with basic life support and advanced cardiac life support protocols is similar regardless of the exact etiology. So that has to be said. Also, remember that thankfully, the incidence of amniotic fluid embolism is pretty low at about 1 to 30,000 to 1 in 40,000 in some publications, although maternal cardiac arrest from all factors can actually be as high as 1 in 12,000 to 1 in 15,000. So, here are the clinical pearls. Do not rely on a specific laboratory test to either confirm or rule out the diagnosis of AFE. Remember that at the present time, amniotic fluid embolism remains a clinical diagnosis. All professional societies agree that immediate, high-quality cardiopulmonary resuscitation with standard basic cardiac life support and advanced cardiac life support protocols in patients who develop cardiac arrest associated with any condition must occur. Again, it's about speed and timely intervention. It's recommended that a multidisciplinary team, including anesthesia, respiratory therapy, critical care, and maternal fetal medicine, be involved in a woman with cardiovascular collapse. Now, the most critical immediate action is to start chest compressions before rescue breathing is administered. So that's a clinical pearl. Remember always, start chest compressions first. Chest compressions should be performed similarly to non-pregnant individuals. The hands of the provider should be placed in the lower half of the sternum. Chest compressions should be performed hard and fast, achieving a depth of at least 2 inches and allowing complete chest recoil. Patients who are undelivered should be tilted to the left lateral D-cube or preferably have the uterus displaced manually to the left. This is done by an assistant to prevent aortocaval compression by the gravid uterus. The use of vasopressors, antiarrhythmic agents, and defibrillating doses is not different than those utilized in non-pregnant individuals, although concerns that electric arcing may occur if fetal monitors are in place at the time of cardioversion or defibrillation is largely theoretical. It is reasonable to remove these monitors while CPR is in progress. However, the presence of these monitors should not delay defibrillation when and it's indicated. 
If the patient is undelivered at the time of cardiac arrest, expedient delivery is indicated if the fetus has reached an age of potential viability that's greater than 23 weeks. Now, some advocate doing a perimortem C-section at any gestational age greater than 20, not only for fetal benefit, but also to aid maternal resuscitation because at and after 20 weeks, there's a component of aortocable compression that can hinder resuscitative events. Not only can this emptying of the uterus be life-saving for the fetus, but again, it helps, in theory, with maternal resuscitation by removing this venocable compression. An operative vaginal delivery, either vacuum or forceps, should be performed in laboring patients in whom that condition is possible and in which that technique can be done quickly and safely. But if a vaginal delivery is not an option, emergency C-section is indicated. Classically, the indication for a perimortem cesarean delivery has been a failure to obtain spontaneous circulation after four minutes of cardiopulmonary recess to reduce the profound fetal hypoxia occurring during maternal cardiac arrest. Now, this time frame is ideal, but here's a clinical pearl. And remember, it's rarely achievable when cardiac arrest is unexpected and the event happens quickly, sometimes without any notice. So here's a clinical pearl. Try to do the perimortem C-section as soon as possible. Again, if four to five minutes have passed and there's no return of spontaneous circulation, it's important to proceed with uterine evacuation. There have been cases of fetal survival explained in the literature up to 25 to 30 minutes after maternal cardiac arrest. Now remember, that's newborn survival, but it doesn't say anything about their associated morbidity. Once again, we can't drill this in more. It is recommended that preparations for emergent perimortem cesarean delivery be initiated simultaneously with the initiation of cardiopulmonary recess. And if the cardiac arrest is still ongoing as the instruments become available, to proceed with cesarean delivery after four or five minutes. All right, as we get to the end of the podcast, a quick word about veno-arterial extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. Although this procedure has been described in cases of AFE that's been refractory to conventional resuscitative maneuvers, the use of anticoagulation during this procedure may worsen bleeding in the profoundly coagulopathic patient with active hemorrhage. So because of these concerns, as well as a definitive lack of adequate benefit, right now extracorporeal membrane oxygenation is still considered somewhat controversial and is not to be routinely done in the management of amniotic fluid embolism. However, when all else fails and the patient is simply not responding, the use of venoarterial extracorporeal membrane oxygenation can definitely be considered. All right, as we come to the end of our podcast, remember that amniotic fluid embolism is sudden, acute, and dramatic, and it's profound. Not only is AFE a terrifying condition, but any maternal cardiopulmonary collapse is terrifying and, of course, impactful. Remember that we have a previous podcast covering cardiac arrest in the pregnant patient, and you can find that in the archive list. 
Also, go to our Facebook page because yesterday, which was August 23rd, we posted an algorithm in a soon-to-be-released publication from the American Journal of OBGYN by the lead author Luis Pacheco and the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine describing the care plan for cardiac arrest after suspected amniotic fluid embolism. All right, well, we've come to the end of a very stressful podcast. The information for this session comes from a variety of sources, including the 2015 American Heart Association Consensus Statement on Cardiac Arrest in Pregnancy that's in the journal circulation. It also comes from data from the 2016 publication in the American Journal of OBGYN by the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine covering amniotic fluid embolism. We also took information from the upcoming but not yet released publication from the American Journal of OBGYN from the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine. In this upcoming publication, Luis Pacheco and the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine covers cardiac arrest from amniotic fluid embolism. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.